This is Fiber Variety Hour, and we are finally bum, 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 back with Hannah from By Hand and many other things, too. And seasonal slow knitting and slow knitting and designs and, and. I've been busy, I guess. So, Hannah, we're so happy to have you officially on the podcast, not just a, a sneak peek or something like that. It's taken us all a hot second to get rescheduled, but things happen. So yay. What have you been up to? Tell us all about all the things. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad to be here. Um, wow. I guess. So we look at this and we're like, wow, we haven't talked for about a year about (laughs) anything, but really not that much has happened in a year, you know, as far as, um, my work and knitting goes, I did pick up by hand cereal as, um, the new editor and, and owner sometime in 20, oh gosh, the years are all running together over the past four years, I guess, but 2020, 2021. I'm actually going to pause you there because not a lot happened, but like, that's a big thing. Yeah. I mean, so it happened kind of the end of, of one cycle and then we haven't published anything since the end. So to me, it doesn't feel maybe as big as it actually is. Um, for people who are listening and are not familiar with what the heck we're talking about, I guess I'll start, uh, at square one, but by hand cereal is a travel and craft publication that started, um, about seven or eight years ago with Andrea Hungerford at the helm. She was the author, editor, founder, and she wrote these beautiful trap travel and craft magazines. That's actually how we got to know. Kat and Emily was through um, a profile done in the Michigan book, but um, I had come on to the team at By Hands Zero kind of from the beginning, but mostly as a marketing director. And then I came onto the team in the last three years um, in some additional capacities like traveling and also um, helping with some of the pattern coordination. So it was a really exciting project for me. And when Andrea Hungerford, after we'd completed Lookbook 15, which was the Rhode Island book after we had done that when she said, you know, I've got this other collection, this return to Maine collection that I'm still working on, but I don't think I want to continue to publish the print books. I don't think I want to continue to publish the magazine. And I don't really know what to do with the brand. And I said, well, I don't really know what to do with the brand either, but I can't, can't bear to see it just go away. So if you would let me, I would be glad to take it on. And so for the first year after taking it on, we released the Return to Maine collection first as a digital and then as a um, special edition print collection. And after that, we just haven't really published anything else. Um, We did have a short spurt of some digital content before I just sort of decided that I don't um, have the bandwidth to really give the brand the time and energy that it needs. And I think above all, it has to be travel centered and travel focused. And with the ongoing pandemic and things that were happening at the time, and then people were kind of getting back into travel, I had a lot of work upheaval in the last year personally. And so the money was just not there for me to continue publishing. So right now by hand is kind of like on hold. I've got a pen in it, you know, and um, I'm oh, hoping absolutely. to get back to it. We know exactly how that goes. Yes, I'm hoping to get back to it, but it's sort of in a, um, you know, it's sort of in a purgatory sort of place at the moment while I get the funds together for another issue because they're so expensive to produce and travel has only gotten more expensive. And it is very important to me that we pay everyone involved fairly and give them time for the effort that they're putting in. So um, until I can do that, I just have to wait. So the by hand stuff is is not so active, but it is out there. And then um, personally, I started working for Battenkill Fibers, which is a mill in upstate New York. And I currently work for them as their communications director, um, which means that I handle a lot of marketing stuff, social media stuff, but it means also I'm in charge of communicating with the farm customers, the fiber processing customers that Battenkill handles providing additional information to them that will help grow their businesses or um, helping them plan color palettes, arranging the coordination with dye houses that they work with. So it's been really great because it's right in my lane of loving the development and success of domestically produced fiber and yarn and definitely in your all's lane in the sense that it's kind of your, you know, your bit too, to produce this domestically, domestically grown 
and milled and spun and dyed fiber. And so I love being kind of a bigger piece of the manufacturing chain, but in many ways, a smaller piece. And then I get to work behind the scenes a little bit more. So that's what I've really been up to for the past um, year and a half. More that's or less. a lot. I mean, and that's amazing because that support structure of the mill and that support structure of bringing that to the forefront of social media, putting it in front of people's faces. I'll, I'll say that I have absolutely noticed a huge uh, uptick in all of the posts and everything like that from Batten Kill Fibers. And I, I get the newsletter. And what's mm -hmm. funny is that I was following a lot of these things before you, you um, took over and it went from like zero to getting all of the information. And it really kind of brings you a lot more into the whole process. So like, that's great. Can you, can you write an email to my boss? I'm really good at writing those kind of emails. Just send them a link. Yeah. Mary Jean will <laughs> love that. She'll love hearing that. <laughs> yes. Um, we'll just, we will just send them the link to this podcast because I mean, I seeing all of the different things coming through has been really lovely. Good. And yeah. So, so anywho, the last time we talked, you were getting into washing fiber. Um, you oh, like, gosh. I realized maybe that didn't go anywhere, but do you have a greater appreciation for that now that you've been kind of working closely with a mill, even though it's, you know, not the hands-on part of it? Yeah. So the, the first thing that I learned, um, pretty much almost immediately when I started at the mill was that I have no idea how to buy good, good fleece. <laughs> and the fleece that I purchased was not it was not a spinnable fleece. It was not good, a good choice fleece. And so um, I actually ended up composting that fleece that I had been working on. I ended up using it as a blend in the compost pile and also as mulch that summer because um, it was just so, so dirty and very, very pilly. And it just was not going to move in the direction I wanted. I did manage to clean up enough of it to spin some yarn, which came out um, very rustic. Well, yeah, we'll say <laughs> rustic's a nice word for it. Um, we'll say full of, uh, nets, <laughs> like absolutely. Oh, so it's a Donegal type. It's a tweed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> except not dyed, just textured, textured tweed. Yeah. yeah. And so, art um, white art yeah. yarns. Yeah. So it, it was not the most successful experiment that I've done. Um, but I do have plans to do some more fiber processing this summer. I am actually sitting on a very large box of um, alpaca fleeces from Elaine Gerber at Woodland Meadows Alpaca. She raises these exceptional animals in um, near Saratoga Springs. I'm going to get that wrong. Somewhere around there <laughs> in New York. And I got to visit her ranch and meet some of these animals. And she sent me one of her gray rose or rose gray fleeces. And I don't know if if you guys have encountered this particular color of alpaca, but I had not. And so for anyone who's listening, who's never heard of a rose gray alpaca, they are exceptionally beautiful. Basically the animal appears at first glance, either a cinnamon or they appear like a pure gray alpaca. And then when you open up the fleece, when you look at the fleece down next to the skin, it changes color. It either goes to, you know, from gray to a pink, or it goes from pink to a gray. And it's just a very soft, unusual depth, you know, very, um, lots of depth to the color. So when I was visiting Elaine, I commented how beautiful the fiber was. And she said, you know, I'm looking for a hand spinner to uh, spin up a couple of these fleeces for me for next fall. And I said, I would give it a shot. So that's my next big project. She's being very flexible and understanding with me about um, how difficult the project will be or what I've undertaken, but I also get to keep a sweater lot as part of the deal. So I'm pretty excited to do that experiment this summer. Uh, but yeah, the learning how the fleeces are scoured and cleaned at a larger scale has been really educational, but also choosing fleeces, mm. um, being present for, so I got to 10 Maryland sheep and wool and also Rhinebeck. And at both of those shows, we do a lot of fleece pickup at Batten Kills. So people are dropping off fleeces. We're taking a look at them right there. We're looking at them dirty. We're looking at them in the grease. And Mary Jean has really been teaching me like how to identify a good fleece right away. And so my top tip 
for anyone who's listening who doesn't know anything about fleeces and they're like me is uh, here's the ping. <laughs> that's our that's our big thing at at um Bat and Kella is here's the ping. If you pick up a piece of that fleece and you can kind of like bounce it, like um you know how you would snap a rubber band or snap a little towel next to your ear and it goes beep, then and it doesn't break and it just has this really like beep 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 like a bed sheet that goes pop pop pop. It's just the best sound. That means it's a strong fleece. That means the fiber is good. It doesn't have weak ends. So here's the pain. Who said your your fleece should sing to you? That's so clever. You know, um, yeah, I never would have known. Yeah, it's what you were saying earlier really resonated with me, even though I've been buying fleeces for years. Um, You know, I did get a few at the beginning and I still occasionally we'll get one that's really dirty and it's it's funny because like it might be from a farm where I get four fleeces and three of them are great and one looked good and then I open it and there's just so much fine vegetable matter in it you know so like it can still happen to somebody who's pretty seasoned actually at it but um, that stuff hides it does. It really does. And like, sometimes you're just so taken with the farm or the people that you're like, oh, I want to support them. And then you got to kind of go, oh, I, I guess I just bought some mulch <laughs> as you used it for, because I've done that before too. And then at least you don't feel like it's gone to waste and you've still supported the farm and everything. But um, that's such a great learning experience. It sounds like that you're having with them and getting to see that part of the process. So because you're spinning some things for this alpaca uh, farm, are you thinking about doing some designing maybe with some hand spun? Because I've noticed some more people getting into that. And that's exciting to me personally. <laughs> I love, um, I do love how, how much hand spun is appearing in design right now. And I think we really have to give a nod to the folks at spin cycle for repopularizing that look, like really giving us so many patterns to choose from. Um, in addition to the amazing stuff that's put out by ply and spin off and tons of hand spun centric designers, I am actually taking a long hiatus from design. So I joined this amazing community. Um, I'm totally going to plug it here on the show for you, but it's called the Fiber Business Collective, and it's run by my friend Anastasia Williams. And she has put together this community of dyers, designers, fiber industry businesses, yarn dyers, um, manufacturing folks. And they all kind of just talk in this big forum, this big Slack forum, and we hang out in there all the time and have all these interesting conversations, industry conversations in this really private, safe space. We have a lot of rules about our space in terms of how people um, can interact and participate. We want to make sure that it's really safe and um, friendly and that the conversation is engaging and not confrontational. But one of the conversations that we've been having over the past year really struck, struck gold with me mentally. And it was about how there are so many designers in the industry who haven't really put in the time and the energy into learning the craft of design and they're put in these positions where they're kind of like flying by the seat of their pants and designing on the go. And I think that that happened a lot for me, especially in my career work, simply because I was in a convenient location for that to be asked of me. You know, I've worked for a lot of companies that were, you know, putting out patterns, putting out yarns that, that they needed patterns for. And so I was asked a lot, can you just design something quick for this? Can you do this? And right now we're seeing this huge movement in the yarn industry towards really accomplished, technical, informed design. We're looking at designers that are talking about shaping in new ways, um, analyzing the technical aspects of construction in all of these tiny, tiny like minutia ways that I just don't, I don't have the bandwidth for doing all the things that I that I already do. And so after I had um, a piece in Vogue Knitting. I was very, very blessed to have a piece in Vogue Knitting, um, the Michelle Obama issue, and then another piece in um, an earlier Vogue Knitting, but both of them under Nora Gone as the editor-in-chief, which I just love Nora. She's um, so accomplished and a really amazing person and friend and tea time buddy. And so 
when Nora sends you an email and she says, your design that we received, it needed a little more work. <laughs> you know, this isn't the design that I did with your yarn, but this is the design of my Bostonia piece. Had to have a lot of editing um, and some, some major changes to some fit elements. And for me, that was sort of a wake up call in conjunction with the discussions that I've been having in the FBC that maybe while I enjoy the knitting part and I enjoy the dreaming of the idea part, the actual technical design part is something that I could use a little more time and instruction and care in. And so until I have the time to put that effort in, I'm not really comfortable putting more designs out in the world. So if I do design something, it will be something simple, it will probably be an accessory, and if I design any garments in the future, I would say they're highly likely to be designs that I collaborate heavily with a more technical designer to develop. Just because for me, practically, um, designing things from scratch is just not my thing. I just have so many other areas that, you know, that are attracting my attention. So the idea that I would put my eggs in the design basket when there's so many people are doing so much better and more effective and thought through and technical and knowledge based designs. You know, I don't want to draw away from them at all. That's amazing. I, that what comes to mind is a conversation I had with a friend who's a designer and talking about grading for larger sizes and talking about, because I had never thought about this, you know, if you're doing if you're going up in a size, you have to shorten under the sleeve because otherwise you're going to end up with these long giant sleeves. So unless somebody has very long arms, like just things like that, that I had never thought about. And I'm like, had yet again, a, whoa, this is why I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And I have, to, <laughs> yeah. I have all the technical training, you know, I went to, went to fashion school and I learned pattern making and I have all of my pattern making books, but the actual sitting down and taking the time to decipher all of those little pieces and do the math, you have to have the right mindset for that. And I, I just don't have that mindset. Like I'm just not the right, the right puzzle piece for that, for that project. <laughs> you know, but the fact that you could recognize that too, is such a good thing, you know, and you could have just as easily kept plugging along and I'm, I, I, I was about to say, I'm, I'm sure there are, but I know there are people that are still doing that. And, you know, that's why sometimes I end up buying three patterns before I find the one that I actually want to make, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, I think that's such a, a big thing to do. And also, you know, it makes room for you to follow and pursue these other things. So that's wonderful. It's, it's nice that that sounds like it naturally happened. Yeah, it was a very, um, it was a very easy progression for me because when I was designing, I felt so much stress about deadlines and timelines and I would begin a project and it wouldn't work out. It's a, very similar, to be honest, to the way that I knit at this point where I would start something and I would be about halfway through and I'd be like, oh, I don't like that. I need to fix it. And I don't like how this is working. I might need to change yarn. And that's fine when you're working on a project for yourself, you can change things infinite amount of times, but when you're working on a deadline for someone else, you have to respect that timeline. And so I think, yeah, I think that change in this industry, especially around design has to start in so many different tiny ways. And for me saying design is not my strength. I don't need to be taking up space in that, in that category. Um, I hope that more designers who are kind of in a similar position to me where they're being asked, you know, I was being asked to submit things or I was getting opportunities because I have, you know, the books out or I've got connections in the industry um, that maybe I didn't, I wasn't technically deserving of in that way, not because I'm not a great person or I don't have a cute idea or I don't do well with the yarn, but just simply because I haven't got the technical chops and I feel like someone else can can better take that space and so with all with all things in the industry also with pattern recommendations I feel like we really need to start being individually more selective about how we apply our how we apply ourselves and how when we're applying ourselves if we're taking the spotlight off of someone else who's maybe put in more time or energy or effort um, to become an expert in that subject. But I, I feel like it sounds also like 
you're allowing yourself to redirect that energy where you can do what you're passionate about and feel like you have the brain space for rather than trying to force it. And like, that's, that's a huge accomplishment to, to recognize that in yourself of this is where I need to turn. This is not the thing that is going to, I don't know, speak to me if that's, if that makes sense. Um, so it's, it's just, I feel like that is such a great knowledge of self that so much of the time just gets kind of like, I don't, not developed, it feels like. And there's not, I feel like we're finally, um, not finally, I'm starting to see more of that emphasis with people of learning, you know, know, know thyself and all those things, but, you know, hey, or knowing that you want to be doing more of a supporting role, knowing that your talents of lifting up those images, those stories, telling the story without having to be the story. Yeah. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing to balance. You know, when you're young and you're starting out, I think there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into making your name, you know, giving yourself credibility. And I really value every step along the way that I've taken. And I don't regret doing any of the designs for my own books. I think um, they're all really good, strong pieces, but I just think that, um, sometimes as we get a little deeper in, we realize that burnout is a major problem in this industry in all industries. And if you're used to wearing a lot of hats, sometimes it's okay to say, you know, I don't need to put that hat on. Someone else can wear that hat. And so that's kind of where I'm at with it. As I, um, like you said, I know what my strength is in. And so I'm trying to sort of focus, focus my energy, um, and keep my well more full without draining it constantly. So one way I've been doing that is getting back into um, painting and fine art, which is something that I did a lot of growing up and in college was one of my main focuses and then reading, which I know sounds it sounds so basic. Like Amazing. Oh, sounds amazing. I, I love it. No, it doesn't. Because it's my same. favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know I say wool and all those kind of things, but no, I literally met my husband working at a bookstore. Yeah, no, reading was like this thing as a kid that it was my main form of escapism. It's how I escaped a lot of anxiety. And as an adult, especially coming out of the pandemic, I have been experiencing a lot of anxiety. And I think that's very common. I think a lot of people are feeling extra levels of anxiety right now and knitting knitting solves that problem for for me in a few ways it keeps my hands busy but it doesn't always solve the mental anxiety you know when you need to remove yourself from a situation entirely to just be away from it and reading is perfect for that so i'm it's curious so for that. are you a monogamous reader or do you have multiple books going at a time I read one book at a time. I just, um, I am the worst kind of book reader in the sense that I read one thing. And as soon as it hooks me, I'm just buried, buried in that book for days. And I'm a very fast reader. So I'll read giant chunks of a book over like four days. I just finished, um, the Priori and the Orange Tree. I don't know if you've read that. I bought it and it's massive. And I was just about to say, I, what did I get myself into? Was it fabulous? It's amazing. I just finished it this morning. Um, I usually give myself a reading hour in the morning because I wake up really early. And so I just have been trying to dedicate at least one hour in the morning to reading something easy and light. Um, and so I've been reading that in the morning. And then I've also been reading it in the evening and in the bathtub and at the waiting room and anywhere that I can take it because it is a big book. It's like 800 pages. Reading but... everywhere all the time. Yeah, yeah the guy at the bookstore. It. Oh, I'm so sorry. The guy at the bookstore yeah. told me it's a commitment. <laughs> when it's I really a super easy read. Um, I don't know. Everyone's reading Akatar, which is a court of uh, thorns and roses, you know, which is a very, very easy read. It's like why I love a reading. So you can just breeze through it. But those are thick. Those are fairly thick books. This book is a little thicker than that. <laughs> A little thicker than any of those books. It's about 800 pages. And the font is a little tinier than Akatar. But um, yeah, it's it's so good. It's such a good fantasy. Very immersive. All the characters are, all the main characters are women, but not in a way that you notice. It's like a very Oh, seamless. so they don't have to say, look, I am woman. 
No, I like didn't even notice until I was about uh, a third of the way in that that literally every main character is female in this book. It was so seamless. I just didn't didn't notice. And the author is a woman as well. She's written another series, which I'm definitely going to check out. But oh, fantastic book. Cannot recommend <laughs> enough. <laughs> You know, that's the thing is I'm finding that like my stack of books ends up kind of next to my spinning wheel. And then I'm looking and I'm, I'm currently I'm reading The House in the Cerulean Sea, which mm-hmm. I bought the same day that I bought that book. Um, and it's another fantasy magic. You know, um, it's not not the brick that the other one is. But what I'm finding is these beautiful covers that I'm drawn to. Then I look around at like what I'm spinning and the colors match what the books are that I'm reading. <laughs> See, this is a thing. Inspiration everywhere, but also that total escape. I read so much fantasy anymore. And that is like my 100% escape to totally get that. I feel like knitting or doing anything with our hands, you know, like sometimes I don't have the bandwidth to do both that and watch TV. And that's the only way that I could actually get like the brain piece to so then I find that I'm either just watching TV or I'm just knitting and then I'm not getting the thing that I need. So that that's so relatable. And I, like when you said that about reading, I was like, no, no, I have not. I, I went so long without touching a book. And when I started reading again, I'm like you and I'm voracious. Like if, if I start reading it and I get into it, I won't put it down. So then I'm like, well, I can't read because I won't get anything else done. <laughs> you know, I started doing some audiobooks so that I could like in the studio or when I'm when I'm driving places to shows but also when I'm knitting like when I have to do a section I realize that I can do chart knitting color work or whatever and listen to an audiobook because it's two different parts of my brain as long as I have to look at something and the chart it's like keeping everything entertained hello ADD without being diagnosed ADD but um... (laughs) I was gonna say there's no way there's no way my single process brain can do that I can listen to audiobooks while driving and that's really it I have tried to do the audiobooks while working but I can't even listen to music while working to be honest I'm like a I need silence and focus kind of person and my husband is ADHD and he'll put on the tv and the NPR will be playing and he'll be doing the dishes and also talking to me. And I'm just so overstimulated by all of it. So I'm like, I, I have to have I, the right kind of stimulation. Like, I mean, I have this, this mix of music for if I'm in the studio early in the morning and this mix, if it's in the afternoon or late at night, my poor son, whose room is directly above the studio. I have to be real careful that I don't do actual late at night because that's usually when I want to have like the rock music going and he wants to sleep and he'll come down and be like, mom, will you turn down your music? It sounds like you and my husband get along really well, Kat, <laughs> because that's what he does to me. He'll, he'll start playing like his, uh, his like this playlist of seventies, like classic rock albums and it'll be nine at night. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready to go to bed. And he's like, no, I just getting ready for the party. <laughs> like there's no party. I mean, that it's said night. <laughs> late at night anymore is nine or 10. Yes. Yes. Uh, you said you got back into doing some fine art stuff that you were also doing when you were younger. And um, like, I I'm taking a ceramics class right now to get back into throwing again. And even though it's, it's still even hard for me to like force myself to go in to the class. Um, I find that my brain is so much clearer afterward to be able to do the other things. Are you finding that too? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I made a big, I made kind of a big switch when I got back into art. I had been a fine art um, landscape painter for college. That was really my focus. And I worked primarily in acrylic, which is uh, plastic. It's just plastic layers with pigment suspension. And so you get these really glowy images out of everything. Everything feels very richly layered and the color is, while it's flat color, it's not really flat color. It can be very complex. And I really love working in acrylic, but after doing two books on thinking sustainably for my knitting and for my hobbies and really trying to make this sustainable fashion jump in my personal life and things in my home, 
I thought it really wouldn't be that responsible of me to just start back with a coach right away. I felt like that was um, betraying some of the values that I've worked on. So I've been teaching myself watercolor and watercolor as a media is entirely different. It follows none of the same rules. And so it's been like starting at square one. I had to teach myself all of the basics again, teach myself all of the brushwork techniques and how to play with the liquidity of um, the paint and how it changes as it dries and the lack of pigment <laughs> has been a challenge for me. But now I feel like I'm really getting um, getting the hang of it. And I do have a couple paintings, if people would like to take a peek. I have a couple paintings on my Instagram um, that I've recently completed. But I, I think that it's been so good because, it, again, it requires me to take a step outside of my everyday, outside of my um, work and myself. And I think that's just been the resounding the resounding theme of our, our gap year between, between the three of us is that um, my gap year has been very focused on uh, self-care, working out, learning to do painting, escaping through reading, and not so much putting myself entirely in my work in the same way that I was. And that's a very hard, that's a very hard transition when you're pas passionate in your category um, or your industry, it's hard to say, spend less time doing, doing that, spend more time doing this, but it's been really good for me. And so I, yeah, I will encourage anyone and everyone who's, who's listening and thinking about picking something up that they've dropped off, uh, pick it back up. Don't be afraid to be a student. I think that's what I was the most afraid of going back in starting a new media was that not having control not having the ability to execute at the highest level immediately is really hard when you're someone who's very time time and deliverable based. And so you look at it as you know, success is finishing something to the level that you need it. And with painting or with any form of art, success is doing the thing. Doing the thing is the success. And sometimes at the end, you get something cool, but most of the time you're going to do the thing and you're still learning how to do the thing. And so the thing is not going to be that great. <laughs> you know, you get out the other <laughs> side and you're like, the thing is kind of junk, but that's okay. And being okay with that is like a complex personal emotion. <laughs> it, it really is. It's super difficult. Um you know, like I'm teaching a beginning jewelry class right now. And so I, I'm constantly on the other end of being like, no, no, just keep doing it. But then even though I'm returning to throwing and ceramics, I'm just like, man, this is hard. This is really hard. And like, every time something works, I feel so good about it. And it's, it's incredibly humbling to do it because you just have to accept that the fact that you're doing it is just as you say, that is doing the thing is the success in it. And that's just terrific. But I, I, I need like that recording of you saying all of that, which I guess I oh, will. Don't have. worry. We have that now. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, and it's so interesting to me. I was just going to say that, that like little recording, I wish I could just like play that for all my students at the beginning of every class, because you know, I'm going to start teaching 10 beginning spinners in a couple of weeks, which like I'm floored about it. That like the most I've ever had where I teach is like six or eight or something like that. And That'd be amazing. I, I'm stunned and so excited, but like, I know that I'm going to have to be like, everybody's looks like that at first, except for that person over there. Theirs didn't look like that. It was perfect somehow. It's and okay. you're just it, was, it was reincarnation they and they were remembering how to do it, not learning. Yeah, but no, but sometimes people can just do it. <laughs> like you just, They're a ringer. Oh. They've been placed in your class as a ringer, clearly. Oh, yes. <laughs> they were they were there just to be like, oh yeah. I have people that I have taught to do things that I'm like, can I show you how to do something else? Because it makes me feel like a really good teacher. But what I was actually gonna say, Hannah, was um 
it really rings true for a couple of conversations that I've had recently, like in the last two weeks recently, and almost back to back, where my dear friend Claire, who has just gone through the loss of a parent and, you know, stepping away from her job post burnout and all kinds of things, says to me a couple of weeks ago, I have to remember and remind myself that you have to make bad art before you can make good art. And I was like, oh, oh, it was like uh, that aha, I'm opening moment. And then a couple of days later, I was at my friend Nadine's and she was talking about how she didn't want to start doing this project because she, you know, it won't be perfect and all this kind of thing. And I was like, you know, my friend said, and then the next day she sends me a picture of her loom warped up. And then, yeah. And she just, it, I was like, it was like this movement of this idea. And then hearing that out of your, uh, your mouth and like such an elegant way of putting it. And I was like, damn, we need stickers. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that there's this, um, this pressure and this is so this conversation is very philosophical and not knitting related at all that we're having, but it is knitting related. Um, It's all life related because it's, you know, everything. Yes. And so I, I've seen this, um, I saw this little therapy. It was like a therapy clip the other day where someone was talking about how social media, um, Instagram in particular, when it came on the scene, we had a choice culturally. We had a choice to say, do we, do we capitalize this? Do we turn this into a monetization platform that's all about being the best, being the sleekest, being the most famous, being the most beautiful? Or do we make it something cultural sharing based in the way, and somebody had mentioned Facebook albums. And I know both of you are similar in age to me. So you remember when Facebook started and Facebook albums, you would just dump your whole camera roll. You wouldn't label anything. You would go back in later and maybe add a funny caption and tag your friends, but there was no aesthetic to it. There was no like, I took these gorgeous photos and you should worship me because I'm a fantastic photographer and like a a lifestyle, you know, we had no illusions of grandeur with our- A lifestyle creator. Right. We had no illusions of grandeur. And then- curator. um, Right. And then Instagram starts. And instead of taking that same energy of, I'm making a thing and just sharing it. We took that energy culturally and we said, we're making a thing and we're sharing it, but it has to be perfect because it's for profit and we're advertising something and somebody else needs something from us. And so by doing that, we created this social pressure that everything that you have to do is done with the purpose of showing someone else that you've done it and showing how good you are at doing the thing. And that in and of itself is the antithesis of making something for yourself or finding joy in making, you know, comparison is the thief thief of joy and all of that. And by creating a platform in which even, even in our learning and in our development, we're comparing ourselves with others and afraid to share those in-between steps or the missteps along the way. I think that there's, um, that's very related to why it's hard for people to approach new things or learn something new right now because they feel this need to be accountable for their quality of learning how well are you learning at how well are you producing and so I'm really trying to let go of any any thought that what I'm making is for any greater purpose than than just the making of it and that's hard as a as someone who took fine art classes, as someone who works in you know a semi-artistic field, it's hard to create something just to make it because it feels like a waste of my time. But the truth is, like I can't look at I can't look at the paintings that I'm making and feel looking at them that they're a waste of time. You know, so That's just getting yeah, getting past that initial hump of I can dedicate some time to this, and it's okay if what I make isn't that great you know, I see what I learned from each of these failures. And with ceramics, um, Emily, I think it's even, even clearer with ceramics, because I took so I took ceramics class, it is my worst art form. I don't make pots, I don't make vases, I don't make bowls, I make doorstops. That's what I make best. They're nice and thick on the bottom. Um, They often explode and damage other things in the kiln. The, The bottom of these pots that I threw in college and high school, two inches. 
two inches straight. I don't know why they would even put them in the kiln. Um, they definitely destroyed other people's artwork many times. And my mother, I would take all this stuff home to her and I'd be like, look what I made. We did Raku, we did this. And then I would come home and she would be using them all to hold back the big, heavy wooden doors in our house. <laughs> so I feel like that's, that's the kind of humility I'm looking to take into every process now. Like I'm making something, it might not be the next uh, painting to land in the Louvre, but it could find a secondary life as a fantastic doorstop. <laughs> I think that like the moving past all of that too is like, that's such a challenge to move past. Like, can I produce this thing? And just have it be for the sake of making. And I have not been able to do that. And I like, I've looked at my studio mate, I don't even know how many times. And we've both just been like, can I, I just make stuff. I don't want to have to try to sell it. I just want to make stuff. And like, we have that, that desire so strongly to continue to make things, but we just don't know what to do with all of it when we get done with it. So that's like the only reason, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons why we even feel the need to sell our work is because we just don't know what to do with it afterward. And we got to buy more supplies because we're not going to stop making stuff. So yeah, it's very difficult. And I think sometimes we do kind of need to like move outside of what we do so close to what we do for a living, even if it's still creative to finally grasp that and get that satisfaction out of it. I think that's probably why I have other hobbies that are not yarn related and why I sew things and bake things and garden like a fiend. Finding the time to do that too. And like, the thing is, is, you know, when we're for the most part, you and I, especially, and I don't know how much you sew, Hannah, um, especially since you have such a fashion background, but you know, when I, when I set out to sew something, it, it does have a purpose. I'm, I'm either making it for myself or I'm making it for someone else. And I feel like some of the things that I've, I've started to do again, have been purely for the purpose of making, um, like the ceramics, you know, I'm looking at it. I'm like, that could be a cereal bowl. It could break in the kiln. It could end up being that I plant something in it because it just didn't kind of come out quite right. But whatever it is, is okay. And that's and if our... it breaks, you can make a mosaic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, just throw it away because not throw it away. Find something else to do with it. But I I had a bowl that had a large <laughs> piece like that came off, but it wasn't didn't actually harm the integrity of the bowl but I couldn't get that piece to stay on so help me like different kinds of glue and everything else and I didn't have it's not like I have slip and a kiln to try and you know do it and then reglaze it and da 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 and it might not make it anyway I threw it away and I was like holding it by the trash can and had to make myself let go and I was like you know what this is not going to get caught around a sea turtle you can let it go that's so hard, right? When you're doing when you're doing a lot of work and you're thinking about um, sustainability, I think it's really easy to become a little bit of a hoarder <laughs> about just random items. I'm really bad about anything with a lid, anything that's a jar with a lid, or um, a container that's like an old candle. <laughs> I save all of those candles. <laughs> And like melt the wax out of the bottom and save them and put plants in them and give the give away the plants. But you know, you're you sort of become very aware at the of the rate at which you're generating objects that you're not matching up with when you start saving those objects. You're like, oh, why do I have 75 egg cartons? <laughs> you know, you're like only 75. I, I know I saved one because I thought maybe I maybe I'll use it for um. Uh, I don't know, but little tiny seedlings. No. And then you save the other one and you're like, this one would be a good paint palette. And then you save another one. You're like, I'll take this one to the farmer down the road who, who has eggs. He can put eggs in it and, and, you know, sell it at the farmer's market. And then suddenly you've got this stack of egg pellets and none of those things have happened to them. They haven't been used for any of those purposes. And it just really, it's like that with everything. <laughs> 
And wool, especially um, in, in the yarn and wool industry, little bits and pieces sort of float into your life and take up little tiny spaces. Or tools, say, the tools for it. The tools, yeah. And as soon markers. as anybody has anyone pass away in their family who was a maker and they know that you knit, mm -hmm. they're going to be like, hey, I have all of these tools. I actively avoid, I actively avoid anyone with recently passed relatives who are crafters. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. We're not going to talk for like the next six months. I apologize to you, but I know that you're going to start sorting through their house and you're going to think of me and I want you not to think of me. Are um, you saying you don't want to do any plastic canvas? I don't want any plastic canvases, like needle pointing canvases. I'm pretty sure I have some of those somewhere already. They're pink and I bought them from Ben Franklin in 2005. Because oh, on oh rest in peace, Ben Franklin Crafts. I know, I have no idea where they are. Um, hopefully I don't still have, I probably donated them. We do, we are really fortunate that locally here in Nashville, where I live, we've got um, this really cool place called Smart Art Supplies. That's like a donation-based repurposed craft thrift store. So if you're an artist and you've got a bunch of materials or you're, you know, you need a bunch of materials, you can go to Smart Thrift Supply and they've just got art materials and they sort them by like what kind of thing they are and donate them to schools. And, but not everyone has um, a good donation option like that or somewhere to shop like that. So sometimes I save things because I know someone will come along later who needs it. I was really fortunate earlier in this year through Batten Kills Meet, an up and coming dyer. Um, her name is Chelsea. I don't think she's launched her company yet, but she was definitely still learning. And I had all of this undyed superwash yarn from a past, past job. And then a big bag of Jacquard acid dyes from um, my own dyeing experiments, pre-natural dyeing. And Chelsea was getting started. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to send you a box of, of goodies. And it felt so good to get that opportunity to be her on fairy yarn mother in that moment. It just sent her everything she needs to get started. And for no reason, for no reason other than she's just someone starting out. And so I sometimes I tell myself I'm holding on to everything just for that. I'm holding on to, to all this extra stuff just so that when a Chelsea comes along, I can just gift it you know, as a complete package. But yeah, I definitely struggle, struggle with that as well, Kat, the acquisition part. It's yeah, it's the struggle is real. It's definitely real. I, um, my sisters and I, after um, our grandfather was very much a keeper of all the things and a hoarder of all the things like were cans of, of nails and cans of screws used nails and screws, but they were sorted. Um, and of course they were all completely rusty by the time he passed away. So there were these cans of rust. And so that was, that was the level of the things that he would keep. And so we had this, we have this phrase we'll say to each other. And if any of us says I might use it someday, it has to go. <laughs> so we actively like find um, unique ways to say that without saying it. And then realize that we're doing that. But I definitely struggle especially with people who are like going through fabric or that kind of thing um saying no and not getting caught up in it like the excitement of the possibility of like the um the possibility of of what's what that could be you know it's hard not to see that and get excited about it I've gotten a little bit better at saying no or of going through and then passing on what I either won't use, or if it's not, if it's broken, I'll dispose of it. If it is usable, it can go, you know, to a resale shop or what have you. But I, I have a lot of new knitters that come through my life. And so things that I always keep on hand are like, say, six, uh, six through eight needles <laughs> and worsted weight yarn. <laughs> Must haves. Must haves. Yes. Yes, but I, I've definitely gotten better at culling some really hideous polyester cotton blend fabric that had been given to me and such. Yeah, it was, you remember the lighthouses. 
It was bad. Yeah, that was bad. I think something that I've been doing lately and um, my friend Gretchen that I share this studio with um, is like, you talk about all those little bits and like, how many times have you found a bunch of singles that you've spun and you're like, why haven't I done anything with this? Or like, so yesterday we were at the studio and she had brought a big bag of so many singles and we just like played with what would go together um, for like no reason at all other than to ply them together so that she then can make something out of it. And sometimes I think looking inward at our own stashes, uh, even if it's something that we've already started to do something with helps so much to like, look at things in a new light, look at that sustainability portion of it. Like I'm not buying more. And, um, Gretchen is like 100% the person that's like, I'm not buying more. And it helps me so much <laughs> because I have actually like thought a little bit more about things before I have acquired more. And it's hilarious because somebody was talking about a fiber stash yesterday. And I was like, you know, I don't have much of one, but like, I'm in the midst of washing so much fleece right now. And I was like, you know, I probably have upwards of 70 pounds of wool here right now, but like, I don't have much of a spinning stash. So, you change. I like. I love how you changed the term from fiber stash to spinning stash. Oh, because yeah. you said, "Oh, I don't have much of a fiber stash," and then when you <laughs> came back around, just, "Well, I don't have much of a spinning stash." Well, but it's not technically a fiber stash if it's supplies for my business, is it? No. Okay, no. fair. I don't okay, think that's okay, yarn. That's, that's fair. Yarn for work. There's yarn and fiber for work, and then there's yarn and your yarn and fiber, your personal yarn and fiber. And I do think you have when you work in yarn, you have to keep the two separate. Like if they start, if they start intermixing and blending, it's a little dangerous. It's a little messy. Um, I'm actually cold. I'm cold sheeping this year. I'm attempting it. I'm attempting a cold sheep, which is uh, where you don't buy anything. You don't buy any new yarn or fiber. I have a fiber club that's about to expire. So I just have like one or two months left on that. But outside of that, I've been really good. I haven't bought any yarn. I've made it. Uh, today's February 7th. I've made it 38 days without incident. This year. Um, hey, that's, that's gotta been, be a record for a lot of us. Yeah. And it's been really great because not only am I cold sheeping by myself, but I'm cold sheeping as part of a group. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that Nick Crate announced that they had closed last year. So um, for anyone listening who doesn't know all the all the drama, let's have a little tea party. Um, I worked at, like at Nick Crate <laughs> from 2013, um, no, 2016 to a little bit last year through like October of last year in various capacities. Sometimes I was designing the yarn. Sometimes I was contracting patterns, designing the kits. Other times I was doing um, all kinds of little things, the customer service sometimes just depended on what was needed at the time. And last year I was a contractor for them mainly, but they closed in December. They announced that they were closing and they were filing for bankruptcy. And so a lot of the members, former members of Knit Crate, we had built this amazing online community that they were such a big part of and nobody wanted to lose out on that. So the group on Ravelry changed their name from uh, Nick Crate to former members of Nick Crate. And now we're all just hanging out all the time. And I personally decided that I would start a thread to help me with my own cold sheeping goals. And so we've got a whole group of people who are attempting to cold sheep. Some of them are more successful than others. You know who you are if you're listening. Um, shame, shame, shame. But uh, they also, <laughs> a lot of them did great. And uh, we gave everyone their one month chips. Um, virtually, it was a Dorito um, for January. I have to pick a different chip for February. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Maybe something lays. Um, but we're working our way through, uh, through the year, just trying not to buy anything and being really funny about it and just having a great time. And that has been so community is so necessary when it comes to accountability, either on a personal level or 
a very private level, um, like with your own purchases and your own stash. And so that's been huge, huge help for me, but it's also helped me dive into the things that I already have. I have so much cool yarn that's here already in, in my house, so much cool fabric that's here and bringing new things in. It's like distracting yourself with something shiny instead of looking at all the awesome stuff that you already had. So I'm doing a major dig into stash this year. I'm trying to be monogamous with my projects, finish up some wits, but I'm also doing it in this very um, lackadaisical, non-committal way. Because if you're going to commit to something like a cold sheep, you can't really tie yourself down in a million different ways on top of it. Just one so, track instead of all of them. May I submit for your December chip? I think it should be all dressed, right? February all dressed. Okay, deal. Yeah, because my like, Canadian friends will yeah. appreciate the all dressed. <laughs> It just feels like the end of the year that should be the one because like you should have lots of things made, right? Yeah. Okay, so December, <laughs> I mean, I was you're talking suggest, December this year. Well, interesting, like the pita chip or There's the bagel There's so many chip. good chips. There's so many good chips options. So The bagel I, chip, the pita chip. Emily, I said this to you. I, I made a meme and sent it to her that said that moment when I realized that a bagel chip is just a flat crouton. And my daughter decided to argue that point. <laughs> And how it's not actually a flat crouton. A bagel chip? Well, I don't think that's, I would have to agree with your daughter on this one, Kat. I feel like a croissant has laminated dough, which is the key to a great croissant is that the dough has been laminated. Oh, no, no, no. A, a, a crouton. Yeah. Oh, a crouton. No, I still, I still just dried and cut up bread. Yeah. <laughs> Croutons, you just make the so cut what, up So what is bread. a bagel chip then? It's a slice of a bagel that's been yeah. baked to the point of chippage, but right? <laughs> no one's invented the croissant chip yet. That can be your mark on the world, Cat. I think you I, should leave leave the yarn industry, go full croissant, croissant chip. chip. It'll be bigger than cronuts. And then when I when I file for bankruptcy, I'll say, I'd like to dedicate this to Emily. I want to I want to dedicate my bankruptcy. I didn't know you could do that. I I well, apparently that's thing. now a thing. I don't know. <laughs> I want to dedicate my bankruptcy. Oh, it's hilarious. To the, to the oh. podcast episode XYZ, where Hannah and Emily suggested I leave my job in pursuit of the croissant chip. Yeah. I actually think for February, I have to give them a chocolate chip. So for those of you who are who are in the cold cheaping group who may or may not listen to this later, Close your ears. You might get a chocolate chip for your February chip because it just seems appropriate with the. Uh, it does the seem thing. perfect. Absolutely. It seems appropriate. So, actually, speaking of the like leaving your job or being your own boss or that kind of thing, um, I'm curious going back to working for someone else more on a day-to-day -day basis, how has, how's that feel to not be all in charge? It's great. It's great. Now I will say that, um, at Botten Kill, I have an enormous amount of, uh, responsibilities and autonomy. So Mary Jean is great to work with because she and I are very similar in that we'll both do the most. We have no, we have no choice, but to be extra as people. So um, anything that I do, it's never an issue of, can I meet the requirement? It's always an issue of, did I do too much here? <laughs> did I step out of my lane? Have I done, uh, have I done the most? And so it's been good to work for someone who understands that particular brand of over-enthusiasm. Um, but it is nice to take more of a backseat role and sort of take ownership over smaller processes because it releases some of the pressure and the tension and the stress of being in charge of all the things. And while um, you're not, you can kick it up to another manager. Yes. Well, just her. <laughs> so hey, well, that's another manager, right? Tired to go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm technically communications director. And so I report to the two male leads and Mary Jean and they're the uh, I guess you would call it like the founder's circle or the owner's circle. And so depending on the issue that I'm having or the question that I have, I do have to take it up. And then there's the other, the whole other element that I work remotely 
from Tennessee and the mill is located in New York state. So that has some, has some little restrictions in and of itself, but overall the job is a great fit for me simply because it allows me to touch so many pieces of the fiber industry. I get to help so many different companies kind of take a next step or stretch, you know, stretch in new directions, but I'm not responsible for their ultimate success or failure. I'm just responsible for giving them ideas and we're as a mill delivering their product. So that's a huge, also none of it's, you know, none of it's brain surgery. I think about this all the time, or as a friend of mine would say, none of it's rocket surgery. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. So that's my like rocket all science the time. Funded with brain surgery. Not a rocket surgeon. Yes. Um, yeah. So not having to, not having any real sense of desperation or a life-threatening issue is always a plus in your day-to-day job if you're someone who deals with uh, with a lot of anxiety. Ab- yes, absolutely. So I'm well, and along those lines though of, you know, working for the, the mill and working remotely, are you able to turn off and walk away from it at the end of the day? Yes, yes, I would say generally so. Um, I have found, so I have an iPhone. Um, I'm really into the do not disturb setting, the focus setting. I felt at first when I started using it, I felt that it was rude, but now I feel very strongly that it is not rude. It is just setting a very good boundary for myself, which is stop looking at your damn phone. (laughs) So I, um, I have it set now. I turn on do not disturb exactly at 5 PM. I do check, check my phone a few times in the evening in case I've gotten a text message from someone but I have it so family calls will come through if it's an emergency or there's something important going on, I will know about it. And that's been that's been great. That's been a life, a game changer, life changer for me, just kind of trying to reclaim that time. It also helps oh, that Hannah, I'm working like life hacks by Hannah. Like this is just this is a no, it, this is great because it's things that sure you know it. But seeing it put into practice is sometimes what we need to be to give us kind of the kick and the behind it to actually try it. Yeah, doing it yourself. Doing it yourself is the hard part. You hear about it, you're like, oh, that's so smart. That person's a genius. And then you just move on with your life exactly how it was. And, and just scroll. changes. Again. Yes. Yes. I saw this so, great reel about how to turn off your phone. How to set better boundaries at your work. You know, those those ones where they're like, um, how do you say professionally, this, this sounds like a you problem, you know, those sorts of, um, reframing oh, like the my last emails train. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think that, um, that is trans transitioning in every way culturally right now. I think people are just looking for ways to slow down the expectations being put on them in whatever capacity that is, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and your expectations are revolving around your kids and house house duties, whether you are someone who works in a super high-powered corporate environment and you're expected to work 70-hour weeks and travel, you know, to two different places every month. Everyone is kind of leaning towards this effort to reclaim their personal time and achieve a little bit more balance and focus on self-care and maybe maybe it's not everyone maybe the rest of the world is not doing this but I'm doing it because I have to do it <laughs> I have to do it for my own sanity and because I really want to be able to work on other things without feeling like I'm running on empty um I really want to write another book at some point and right now I don't have I don't have the energy build up. I don't have the the inspiration build up that I'm going to need to do that. And the only way I can get there is by um, allowing allowing my mind and my energy to replenish itself. You know, digging into things that are unusual for it, stretching those boundaries, or forcing myself to learn something new, even though it's uncomfortable, and taking time for myself, even though it's hard to justify the time. Um, but every, everything that you do that's like a little uncomfortable, it's like training yourself to do it again. So I'm attempting. <laughs> it's, it sounds like you are flourishing and that's fantastic. It's just fantastic. Well, you've had a lot of words of wisdom for us to be slowing down and justifying 
even though we shouldn't need to justify to ourselves our long hiatus. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about? Um, you know, I I don't really have any major major projects in the pipeline right now, and I'm okay with Very that. Open ended. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, it's good. I I think that I would love. I would love to meet anyone who wants to come visit me at the Batten Co. booth at Maryland Sheep and Wool this year or at the Batten Co. booth at Rhinebeck this year um, and talk about any of this stuff. I, you know, this seems like such a natural progression from writing two books with slow in the title to living a more slow life. It's a little bit manifestation. You Almost know, like wishing you by yourself you can, twice. Yes, exactly. You know, slow down, slow down again, slow down again. And so maybe, um, maybe what I just really want to leave people with after this, this really fun, um, largely off topic. Oh, it's <laughs> all on topic. It's all not on so topic. fiber, a fiber variety. We put but, variety um, in there for a reason. Dang. Yes. You're not lying. I th- we put the variety think- in variety. Never mind. <laughs> I think I just want to encourage people like give yourself permission to do whatever it is that feels like you need to be doing it not necessarily the thing that you should be doing you know I think there's a lot of things I should be doing I should be working harder to promote my past two books I should be um setting up I had a therapist who said you know we can should all over that (laughs) yes Yes, but instead maybe do do what's good for you and stop worrying about, I just feel like change is going to have to start with us. And if we want to get out of this um, capitalist nightmare <laughs> that we've found ourselves in, the only way we can do it is to really embrace individually what we need and to make ourselves and our individual experiences um, in our real lives, in our day-to-day lives, not in our virtual lives, not in our presentation of self-lives, if we make those moments the, the most important. And I think that seems so, it seems so natural to think that way, but I think that culturally we've gotten out of the realm of thinking that way, you know, thinking in the present first, thinking in the moment and not about the documentation or um, taking a photo and that's everything a, being content. Yes. Yeah. I am not in the everything is content camp. I am in the I don't want to be content camp. And I feel like I've moved. I've moved. I want to be contented, not be content. That's the sound bite for me. I want to be contented. I don't want to be content. Um, I'm just going to end there because I feel like that was perfect. You are absolutely right. That was amazing. Thanks so much, Hannah. 